All right, hello everybody. I am Jason Hine. I'm sitting here with a good friend of mine. We're going to be talking a little bit today about, I guess, some things that really gross people out. Jeff, oh, um, freak people out. Freak them out. What are we going to be talking about? I tell you, in Maine, we don't have venomous snakes. We don't have any venomous spiders, but people are freaked out about ticks. Ticks. We're talking ticks today. The tiniest little things you can imagine, the size of a poppy seed, but for some reason they will still elicit an emergency department visit for a lot of anxiety. They so will. They're I very anxiety provoking. I think it'd be cool to talk a little bit about kind of what goes into this anxiety, how to address it, and then see if any of that anxiety is actually real. If there's some stuff behind this that we need to really seriously consider for both the symptomatic patient, but also the asymptomatic patient that comes in. Yeah, perfect. Because those little bad boys, they, they harbored a lot of a lot of creepy crawlies in their guts, I guess. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. But let's uh, let's open with a case, if we may. I'm going to kind of give you a simple case, tell you the superficial way that I would manage it, but I think there's going to be more to the conversation. So we're working here in Portland, Maine, where Jeff and I live, reside, and work. We have an eight-year-old patient come in, was brought in by their parents for an embedded tick found during bath time. They removed the tick and brought the child for evaluation. They, of course, have their medical degree from Google MD and want to know if they should have antibiotics for this tick infection. They're unsure of how long the tick may have been embedded in their child. Hmm. This is tough. I don't think I've ever seen this case before. Never heard of that. Nope. Never heard of that. Oh, it, um, if you live in a Lyme endemic area, you've probably seen a few patients that come in, um, mostly concerned about Lyme, but I think it'd be really helpful to talk about, you know, what's the risk of other tick-borne illnesses? Because there's certainly a lot of other things that, that ticks can give you. Um, so this, this is a great, a great clinical conundrum in some ways, because we want to be good antibiotic stewards, but um, we, we want to know if there's a real benefit to giving chemoprophylaxis, and and if there is, kind of what's the risk benefit ratio? What's the, what's the risk of giving these antibiotics? The cost, potential side effects, how many do we have to treat? So, a, a lot of really great questions, and I think it, it comes down to you know tick-borne illnesses. They give you a lot of things. They can give you Lyme. They can give you Rocky Mountain spotted fever, lichiosis, babesiosis. We can go on and on, but. There's a lot of stuff, and, and I, I think it would be helpful to go through a couple scenarios here. We'll talk about one where a patient maybe has a little bit more symptoms, but then also I think the crux of it is going to be this, this patient that's asymptomatic. When do we treat, and if we treat, how long do we treat? Because I think the big thing we're worried about is, is Lyme disease and unrecognized Lyme disease progressing into some of the chronic problems of sure. um, that's been documented and, and certainly can be problematic, although rare, it's still a serious, um, finite possibility. So um, we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Can I give you my superficial answer to that question, my understanding, and then ask you about does this hold weight? Because I think if you live in an endemic area where there's Lyme or even some of these other ones that Jeff just mentioned, you probably come across some of the IDSA recommendations, right? We're going to talk about Lyme prophylaxis here primarily. And we'll get into more about the lack of evidence for prophylaxis and the others, but there's kind of a, a few categories or a few checkboxes you have to hit. And then you say, sure, maybe I should give these people a dose of doxy. So the first question, is it a Lyme disease carrying tick? And the primary tick that does this is going to be the black-legged tick, the deer tick, and technically called the Xoides scapularis. 
That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've been, I've been practicing it on YouTube trying to figure out how to, how to say it. Yeah, so if you find that it's identified as an adult or nymphoidal, which is that stage just become, before coming the uh, full-born adult tick, if you recognize that it's a deer tick or an exoides scapularis tick, that's one. Check. The tick has been estimated to be attached for less than 36 hours, a day and a half. Check. Prophylaxis can be started within 72 hours from when the tick was removed. And the local rate of infection of Lyme disease is greater than 20%. That's going to be a tough one. You have to know where you live and have a general sense of how prevalent the disease is there. But that's the number that the IDSA gives. And then, of course, we're talking about doxycycline. So you need to have a circumstance under which doxy is not contraindicated. How did I do? That was awesome. Yeah, for the asymptomatic patient, I think that summed it up really nicely. And that's kind of the IDSA's bullet points. And it sounds <laughs> really straightforward. But when we dive into these a little bit more, there's certainly some some nuances and subtleties. You could take several different approaches. You could you could be the risk averse um, provider that wants to give antibiotics to everybody that's mm -hmm. had any sign of a tick on them. You could give uh, antibiotics, um, prophylactic antibiotics, not the patient symptomatic right now, just prophylactic antibiotics to um, only those you think are higher risk and some of those factors we'll, we'll talk about. Um, or you could decide not to give antibiotics to anybody and just wait and, and give really good counseling to the patient on how to look for signs of a tick-borne illness. And what the IDSA says is within the next 30 days. 30 days of observation. Okay. Yeah, the majority of folks, you know, will have a fever, a rash, um, and flu-like symptoms. Lyme, maybe, you know, 20% won't have that rash. So that's why I think we're thinking about it a little bit more. Plus the fact that it has been shown to be, um, to reduce the incidence of progression to Lyme disease. So we'll dig into that a little bit more. Okay. So yeah, I guess as you mentioned that, there's a couple things that make that those recommendations from the IDSA kind of challenging. How often do they say, absolutely, this is a, a deer tick? Gosh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the hard thing. And, you know, we're talking about what's the textbook answer or when you look up the date, but that's really hard. Sometimes, you know, um, patients will bring in the tick and that'll be great. And um, and so if you're not familiar with, with you know, the black-legged tick or the Ixodes tick that carries Lyme, it's just uh, a Google search away to be able to take a look. And if you have the tick right there, you can easily match it. Mm -hmm. um, I think what you mentioned, which is really important, is that the nipple stage tick, nipple stage tick, that is going to be the one carrying the majority of um, and transmitting the majority of, of Lyme disease. And those are super small. They're the size of a poppy seed. and you know, my my kids sort of roll their eyes during the summer when we're up at camp because every night we're doing tick checks. And mm -hmm. I know all their freckles. Um, they're like, Dad, do we have to do this again? I'm like, yep, every day. And and the two rules of thumb I go by is is the freckle that moves is not a freckle. Mm -hmm. Probably a little insect. And then the, the freckle with legs is also probably not a freckle. That's a so, fair rule. Yeah. So looking at those, and, and really it's those small nymphal stage ticks. And interestingly, you know, the adults still still carry Lyme disease, but they're, they're easier seen. They're a little bit larger. Um, and so we tend to see them, flick them off quickly. but yep. the, Or they get removed early if they're embedded so that they don't have that 36 hours to kind of get it out of the gut and into the, our bloodstream, right? Totally. Yeah, yeah. And so say we have a pretty reasonable suspicion they either bring the tick in with them we're getting kind of that, oh, we, you know, they, 
they know when they they bathed the child the night prior they didn't see this on the arm or on wherever they found it in the case that we presented and we're starting to add up we're starting to tick some of those boxes from the idsa i guess there's it's more than just a yes give the medication or no don't give it there's a lot of nuances to that in terms of how many people need to be treated what are the uh, risks for you know antibiotic administration in terms of side effects so what what are some of those things that we need to consider? Yeah, so just thinking conceptually, kind of big picture, when I think about does this patient need antibiotics or not, I, I think there's a couple questions that come up and a couple of points. One, we, we know that Lyme disease can progress to chronic problems, and you can imagine IDSA and other societies are really aggressive at trying to prevent disease. I think that that's reasonable. Um, the other thing that's you know really important is that uh, potentially – 20, sometimes cited 30% of patients don't have that rash later with Lyme disease. So mm-hmm. it's a thought that maybe they could progress to those chronic sequelae or um, secondary infection without, without seeing it clinically. So um, I think that's you know why it's really important to recognize this. And then thinking about when are we going to chemoprophylax? So it's really a, a risk benefit. So we want to prevent you know, the secondary illness. Um, and we want to know if it works, which we think it does, and we can talk about that a little bit more in detail. And then we want to balance it out with the side effects. Um, and so we're talking about, you know, one-time dose of chemoprophylaxis. Some of the studies used some prolonged courses of amoxicillin, um, but we're really right now talking about that single dose of doxycycline. And and for the most part, it looks uh, pretty safe with with um, probably lower risk side effects. So the the biggest study we have is the New England Journal of Medicine 2001 article by Needleman, and that had the most number of patients looking at chemoprophylaxis. And this is looking at doxy, correct? Because part of the problem was when you look back at the literature, amoxicillin was used a lot, as you mentioned, and the IDSA is recommending kind of against that now because it's just not as effective. So in order to be a good prophylactic, it has to work, right? So we're talking, again, we should have stated this plainly, but we're talking about a 200-milligram dose of doxycycline taken one time for adults. Yes. Yeah. And and in children, you can also dose it up to that 200 milligram. So that's something that, you know, we've talked about in the past or about the risks. Yeah. So let's get into some of those risks. So we talked about the risks of teeth staining with children because it mm-hmm. binds the calcium. And that's really been shown um, to be some of the earlier generation antibiotics that are in the family with doxycycline. And it's not really shown as much with doxycycline and not with that single dose. And so IDSA has really given us the um, the green light to, to be able, or the, I think it's the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah, AAP has AAP. gotten behind it as well. So both the, the IDSA and the AAP, which is great to have the IDSA, but I've put a lot more weight on the American Academy of Pediatrics saying the dose of doxy at you know, up to the 200 milligrams or 4.4 mg per kg is going to be okay. And it's great to have the IDSA say that's safe, but I agree. It really puts a lot more weight to have the American Academy of Pediatrics behind that recommendation that that dosing is okay, even in children less than eight. Yes. Yeah. Which is great because um, it's probably really the best. Um, it's It's been the one antibiotic that's shown to, to work for chemoprophylaxis. Sure. Um, obviously in the IDSA's, IDSA's guidelines and recommendations, not to use an alternative if there's an allergy or a contraindication to doxy. Interesting, um, right? So if we, on that last point from the IDSA checkbox that we were, we'll put in the show notes as well, doxycycline is not contraindicated. So if we are finding there is a true contraindication, which is, again, not age, not for children, but 
uh, say an allergy and anaphylaxis, they're actually recommending against prophylaxis in those people because we don't have another agent that has a similar efficacy. Yeah, that uh, that has been shown. It's and the, the literature is really interesting when when you get into it. And you know, before this larger study um, really showing convincing efficacy, all the other studies were much smaller numbers mm-hmm. of patients, and the incidence even in endemic areas of Lyme was was really low, usually around one to three percent um, of people getting Lyme disease. Getting Lyme, yeah, mm-hmm. in endemic areas, so it was hard to really show a benefit. So um, yeah, it's really just the doxy that's been shown. So if if there's a true contraindication, um, you know the incidence still in endemic areas is so low that I think yeah. the IDSA says, you know, just educate, look for clinical symptoms, mm-hmm. um, and avoid any other um, antibiotic for prophylaxis. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, that that one three percent. So if Lyme disease is even in heavily endemic areas, it's still that low, and people that are getting bit by ticks, that is going to affect your NNT, your number needed to treat and really got to weigh your risks that we're starting to talk about pretty heavily. So teeth staining certainly in children. What other kind of risks or side effects do we need to consider in these patients? Yeah, so we, we think about you know a whole spectrum of things in, in antibiotics. We think of allergies, minor like rashes, and more serious life-threatening allergies like angioedema and anaphylaxis. Um, certainly with doxy, um, we think about some of the doxy-known things, so pilosophagitis, um, it can tend to be pretty upsetting to the GI tract, and sure. nausea and vomiting are actually pretty common in the treatment group in that Needleman article. Um, you know, what was really nice to see, though, in, in both the meta-analysis that was done, um, as well as the, that was done by uh, Warshavsky, and then also the Needleman study, is that um, the majority of reactions were, were pretty benign. It was nausea, vomiting, um, maybe a little bit of diarrhea, maybe a little bit of rash. Um, but no serious life-threatening allergic reactions to sure. that one-time dose of doxy. So that was that was and pretty that makes nice sense because we we generally think of doxy as well tolerated, but we do have to think about that as what like thirty some odd percent of people are going to have some kind of GI upset or other minor uh, effect or side effect of doxy. So that needs to be weighed against that maybe one, two, three percent risk of going on to have Lyme's disease. Yeah. So you know all those things are pretty rare, but maybe collectively. The, the the risks of doxy um, and also the cost has to be weighed into the benefit. Sure. Um, and in, first, like we said, just we need to know it works, which we, we we feel like we do, and then we need to know kind of what's maybe that tipping point, that that point of equipoise where the benefits of treating are going to outweigh the risks and downsides of antibiotics and all the things that we talked about. Okay. Yeah, and and so that's certainly you know dependent on your your um, disease prevalence. So. Being in those Lyme endemic areas, those are really the ones that we're going to be thinking about with those high percentage of um, of Lyme that IDSA will, will recommend. Yeah, and they're, they're specifically saying 20%. And I have to say, I don't know. I haven't sampled all the ticks in my area and tested them for, for Lyme, so I don't know specifically. I think of us as an endemic area. I have no literature to say we're at 20%. God forbid we're at 18%. You know, Then maybe we're overly prophylaxing people, but... That's the number to keep in mind. And kind of what areas would you say are regions that have that endemic prevalence? Yeah, that's a, it was a tough question to try and figure out. Um, I, I, you know, looking at some of the sources, it sounds like, you know, a lot of the New England areas, mid-Atlantic states, Jersey, those are some of the areas where you're going to see those in some of the Midwest as well, Pennsylvania, New York, 
my home county of Westchester. Gosh, we talked about this. They have 800,000 residents, and I saw in one year 180,000 tick, 180, tick bites. So certainly they were multiple offenders, but it gives you an idea. About That's a that. lot of bites. And then Wisconsin, Minnesota, they get lumped in there pretty heavily, right? Yeah, don't forget those Minnesotans, eh? Yeah, <laughs> and, and Wisconsin. Um, awesome two places, but unfortunately... That kind of goes along in medicine. If you're good people, you're probably going to get disease. Some nasty diseases. <laughs> <laughs> and it includes tick-borne illnesses. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we're, you know, we're thinking about these areas. Um, when we're thinking about risk-benefit, are we in an endemic area? If we're not, and that's why the IDSA is kind of clear up front, you know, don't worry about treating um, unless they're, they're symptomatic. Otherwise, sure. if they're asymptomatic, just watch for disease because the prevalence is so low. But in these endemic areas, um, that's where I think you're going to get the better NNT. Perfect. So kind of maybe coming full circle, if we can, to that to that kid, what's your impression of that child and whether or not they get doxycycline? All right. So um, so thinking about this kid that's coming in, we want to risk stratify because I think this is a kid who reasonably could be given um, antibiotic prophylaxis. But I think we're going to get a little better number needed to treat if we risk stratify and see if this was a high risk tick exposure uh -huh. um, for Lyme or if it was lower risk. So you know, the first thing we're going to look is if was the tick attached, and it's pretty simple. If you can flick it off, it's not attached. If sure. you have to pull it off, and certainly is a a, a small talk in itself, um, then that's that's an embedded tick, and and so that is going to cause us to think more about it. And what you ask is, um, is it a member of you know the Ixodes species, the ones that carry Lyme? Mm -hmm. That seems like a straightforward question. There's lots of Google pictures. Um, but interestingly, some of these studies that actually um, measured how well physicians could judge this it was yeah. pretty poor. Um, you know, maybe 30, 40 percent were accurate. Oh wow! Some of the some of the um, insects that were submitted were um, spiders. Were in some of these studies, so <laughs> it was a little comical. Even um, you know, quote unquote, the experts in the emergency department that are help that help sort this out for patients were not even sure. Mm. And then you know, if you have that patient who is freaked out, pulls it out, flushes it down the toilet. Um, who knows? But you can start with kind of if they had a picture, if um, they could overall give a description of the size. Mm -hmm. So certainly dog ticks are not thought to carry Lyme, and that's something you can easily differentiate based on the size. Right, sure. Yeah. Larger tick. So I'm going to ask, you know, is, is it, was it embedded? Do I think it was the tick that's going to carry Lyme? Um, and was it niffle or adult? So we're going to talk just generally size and and I think the good rule of thumb we talked about before is a nymphal stage tick, which is much higher risk, is is more of a poppy seed-like size. And again, these are the ones that we're probably not going to see, so they have more time to feed and bed and, and regurgitate that lovely um, bacteria into you and give you Lyme. And then um, the other question, which is interesting, is, is how long was it attached? So you would think that just having that tick embedded in you is a risk, and that's what freaks people out because they think that's um, you know, maybe equivalent of a needle stick. There's an instant risk of transmission. Right. Uh, but this has been been studied pretty well, and so the risk of transmission is really probably negligible um, for the most part. 36 hours. Um, so if, if they have fed less than 36 hours, mm -hmm. then you could you could assume that the risk of transmission is essentially nil, and that's part of that IDSA guidelines. Interestingly, that you know the bacteria that's in the gut it only gets regurgitated. 
if you will, into you after that time period. Yeah, the spirochete. Uh huh. Yeah, the spirochete. You want to you want to pronounce it Borrelia burgdorferi. Perfect. Ah. <laughs> Nicely done. It just done. rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I just wanted to also say that that data is super interesting. How they got to that. They just put a bunch of ticks on rabbits mm -hmm. and pulled them off at different time intervals to see when they developed the BB. Yeah, and they would culture uh, the ear. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so um, it's reasonable data. It's not perfect, but that 36-hour rule seems to it, it held up in those rabbit trials, and then they have some some patient-based data as well. But um, that's a, that's the time point. 36 hours is really when the transmission from the gut into the human host happens. Yeah. Yeah, and and gosh, how do you how do you guesstimate that? So you know, if I'm talking to mom and dad, I'm I'm asking you know you know where is the tick? So is it in a, a relatively reasonable area to see it? Um, so is it you know on the leg where you would see the kids um, shin in the summer a lot? They're wearing shorts, or is it up in like an inguinal fold? And, sure. And they may not see it. So um, asking when the last time was they saw that body part without the tick is an obvious question. When was the last bubble time? And um, I know with my eight-year-old, it's it's a struggle to get her to take a bath every day. So it probably wasn't yesterday. Yeah, sure. Um, so just kind of a reasonable guesstimate of maybe how long that, that tick was was embedded, I think, is just the most practical way that we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and some of the things I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, too, did they just come here to, to vacation? They were on a plane yesterday and they took a hike, you know, yeah, today. Good point. Good so. Point. Um, you know, what was the activity that we think may have been higher risk? In endemic areas, just just living and just walking around your backyard is certainly a risk for us to get a tick. But yeah, if you could somewhat risk stratify their their lifestyle to to sort of pinpoint when that tick might be on, that's that's another helpful way to to kind of sort that out. Sure. And then the other thing, you know, we're we're talking about where is the what's the local infection rate? So talked about all these ways to risk stratify. The other way is is certainly with a local infection rate. So um, the big areas that we're talking about, um, you know, are Mid-Atlantic, New England area, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, in the upper Midwest. Um, so it's these areas that are going to have the highest incidence of Lyme. And so that's going to make it um, something we may want to treat. So, yeah, I'm looking at all these questions. I'm, I'm asking mom and dad. I'm trying to do some research. And, and if I think there's a reasonable chance this was probably the um, Ixodes tick that was nipple stage that was fed for a fair amount of time sure. and I'm in Maine, I think that would be reasonable to give a chemoprophylaxis. Okay. And so, like we said earlier, we're going to dose that um, uh, per weight for the kid up to the 200 milligram dose. Yep. 4.4 mg per kg up to 200. Yep. Yeah. Cool. And so that's kind of the approach in a, a starting superficial, we're looking at the IS, IDSA recommendation. The patient with a tick bite, zero symptoms. You can look at the IDSA and say all of that makes sense, but when you actually start to try to apply that in a clinical setting with, with real patients, it gets pretty complicated. The parents think it was a deer tick. Well, what does that mean? Like, what, what did it look like? Can you compare it to charts? How long was a tick in, in, uh, attached? Was it engorged? What's your local infection rate? These are questions that we need to kind of think about before we see that in our summertime patients. So that's a great review of the patient without symptoms. Yeah, actually, you know, that, I mean, that's an awesome summary. The last thing I'd add, you know, is that decision-making is best evidence plus um, uh, shared decision-making. plus sure, sure. So, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of anxiety um, that goes around, around ticks. And, 
I certainly, if it's the right move and the right thing for the patient, will want to talk them off the antibiotic ledge. But if I'm really just not able to get through and they're very risk averse, I, I'm not going to sweat giving, you know, a one-time dose of doxycycline for those folks. So I, I think, yeah, I think it's a certainly a blending of, of the best evidence out there and then decision, shared decision-making with, with family and the patient. Yep. You definitely have to kind of gestalt the the family members, the the parents, and see if they're understanding of the ideas of the, you know, if this really is a low risk exposure, if it's clearly a dog tick, but they're not sure, they're convinced it's a deer tick, and you'd need to talk them off that ledge. It's it's a, a patient-specific thing. If your department's very, very busy, that's going to affect your ability to transmit that correctly. If you think they're going to go, if you don't give me this information, I'm going to go right to the next minute clinic. That's not going to be patient-centered you know, centered care, and you need to take that in mind. But I think when we're dealing with such shades of gray and we're talking about risk benefits, then you have to take in that, that risk aversion and that anxiety that comes with it as well. If it's clearly a dog tick, I would never say give the dose of doxy to appease parents. But if we don't know, if we don't know how long the tick was involved, that's going to come into play much more readily. Yeah, that's that's a great way to summarize it. If there's any sort of uncertainty, and and um, although a watchful approach is is certainly reasonable, I, um, if parents want antibiotics, if the patient wants antibiotics, yeah, I think that would be a, a right way to go too. Perfect. Um, and kind of that that last element that we didn't hit that hard because it doesn't come into play as much as that seventy two hour rule. So you want your antibiotic to start within 72 hours. And it sounds like that's basically based on you need your single dose to be effective. And if there's replication above which that dose is going to actually remove the infection, that's not prophylaxis, right? That's not going to prevent disease progression. That doesn't come into play as much in my mind in the ED because they see a tick, they remove a tick, they're there five minutes later in the department. They're not, I saw a tick on my body six days ago, and now I want that evaluated without symptoms. Is that, what? what's your experience with yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Either they still have the tick in, and, and they just, for some reason, couldn't figure out how to get it out, and so they yeah, come sure. in and um, get some reassurance, or they've just had the tick and they have anxiety about needing antibiotics. So, yeah, I think practically we're going to see these folks within 72 hours, but it's important to, to point out that when chemoprophylaxis of doxycycline was studied, it was within that 72-hour window. So those are the, going to be the ones that we're going to consider it. Beyond that, um, you know, there really isn't evidence for it, and it's recommended to, to not give chemoprophylaxis and just sort of watchful waiting. Perfect. All right. So that was a great case in discussing, Jason. Let me, let me throw one at you now. So sure. you have a, um, you're working here in, in Portland, um, or Biddeford is where you Yes. Spend the majority of your time just south of Portland. And you have a 65-year-old female who um, has been out gardening. Okay. And so she pulled the tick off herself um, a few days ago. She didn't think much of it. She doesn't freak out. She's seen ticks before. Uh, but now she's having kind of some mild achy symptoms, maybe subjective fever. Um, and she's worried about a tick-borne illness. Okay. So how, how do you evaluate that patient that presents in that short term after a tick bite for a possible tick-borne illness? Yeah. So she's kind of presenting with the vagues. She's got like. the vagues. Yeah, she's got the vagues. Yeah. And if she's an avid gardener, there's a decent chance you have to think that that exposure has carried on throughout. And we didn't really get into this a lot, but it, the month that you're presenting matters, right? So we have to think about the different stages of all of our different ticks. And as we talked about, the nymph tick, um, nymph stage of the uh, Xoides scapularis is going to be the highest transmittance for Lyme. 
and they're most active. We're finding kind of that June, July timeframe, May, June, July, that early, late spring, early summer is really when they're most avid and most uh, interested in humans. So that's going to come into play. But this lady, she's been gardening, I'm assuming, throughout the spring and into the summer and probably getting exposed to several ticks in our area. So I kind of want to talk a little bit about the symptomatic patient, and we're going to talk about a couple, two different geographies and five different diseases. Awesome. You well, ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, we're going to hit it pretty hot, hard and quick. So New England and that upper Midwest, as Wisconsin and Minnesota, those have three. One area, the, I, I should expand that, the Northeast. New England gets all the credits, the Northeast, right? It even extends New Jersey down in that region, Pennsylvania, includes Lyme, and then the, the upper mid, uh, or the Midwest, Wisconsin and Minnesota. That area, anaposmosis, babesiosis, Lyme disease. That's a lot of osis. There's a lot of osises. Let's talk quickly about each of those a little bit. So anaplasmosis, again, New England, Upper Midwest. The presentation for these three diseases, I'll I'll say them in each category, but they're going to be essentially the same. Fevers, chills, malaise, myalgias. Arthralgias is often kind of the later progression, as we talked about, in terms of secondary signs for especially Lyme disease. But fevers, chills, malaise, myalgias, headache and GI symptoms. You're going to kind of see that in, in all of these. Rash is less common in anaplasmosis than it is in Lyme. Okay. Certainly. And then, so say this lady comes in uh, with that presentation. We probably were dealing with a symptomatic patient. If she's, you know, 65, we're, we're seeing in anaplasmosis, babesiosis, the kind of extremes of age is the patients that may get more extreme disease. So 60, 63, 65, maybe not, 72, 78, 80, you get in a patient that's really got the the vagues, but it's got it bad, Yeah. maybe tachycardic, pretty high fever. Uh-huh. These are people I'm going to consider actually pulling laboratory work on. And so the labs for anaplasmosis, this is also going to be a little bit redundant, as you'll see. We'll see some anemia, some low platelets, the thrombocytopenia, a little bit of a transaminitis, that LFT bump, and then there's that absolute lymphopenia. Yeah. So those will be labs that we're seeing. And those aren't subtle. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a, I've seen a few of these. And those kind of like really jumps out to you that just majority of those cell lines being down. Yeah. It's a it's a pretty decent pattern recognition. And the way that I'm always kind of seeing that is like, oh wow, they have a low white count and their platelets are down. And you look up. You see their LFTs are slightly bumped and then it clicks kind of in my mind. That's the way that these cases have, have worked for me, that that pattern recognition. Why do they have a little transaminitis? Or you see the transaminitis and then you see the thrombocytopenia. Like, uh-oh, this, is, this might be that. So in terms of diagnosing the, these diseases, there's a little bit, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but anaplasmosis, you can do blood PCR, uh-huh. whole blood PCR, or... This is an intracellular disease, as is babesiosis. So you're going to actually see in a blood smear, you're going to see the neutrophils are infected with the anaplasma. Uh-huh. So you can do a blood smear or you can do PCR. Treatment, another redundancy, doxy, 100 milligrams BID. This is 10 to 14 days. Now prophylaxis, we talked about Lyme prophylaxis already. Across the board, we can say there is no prophylaxis for any of the others. So that's anaplasmosis. Got it. Questions? Um, no, I think that makes sense. So, you know, we talked a little bit. So fevers, chills, ragers, kind of flu-like symptoms. And yeah. 
certainly the flu isn't that common in the summer when, you know, when these tick-borne illnesses are. So that kind of helps us differentiate and, and you're going to see those kind of cell lines being down, your anemia, thrombocytopenia, um, transaminitis, transaminitis. Yep. so hopefully that pattern recognition, because that's kind of a unique thing, hopefully that'll really stick out to you in this patient with your clinical suspicion for tick-borne illness, and, yeah. and hopefully that'll that'll seal the deal. And then we talked about doxy, 100 milligrams, BID for 10 to 14 days. Um, and and most of these patients for you are, are going home? Or, yep. Yeah. Yep, generally a home disposition. Anaplasmosis can present rather ill, um, as we talked about in the extremes of age, so rarely not, but usually you're pulling that blood smear or that PCR, or commonly PCR, and sending them home on doxy with the LFT abnormalities, the thrombocytopenia with a presumed diagnosis. Got it. Excellent. So babesiosis, uh, again, we're working with that, that northeast, upper Midwest area, again, June through August. And this is presenting similarly, right? The vagues, the, the don't feel wells, the symptoms of sweats, myalgias, fatigue, headache, anorexia, nausea. Less commonly, you're going to see the arthralgias, as we mentioned, and some of the uh, URI symptoms. And then also babesiosis, in contrast to Lyme disease, is going to have rash as a rare presentation, okay. not as common of a presentation element. Common. But basically... The physical presentation, the symptoms of anaplasmosis, babesiosis, really Lyme, are going to be very similar in their nature, barring that EM rash of Lyme. Mm -hmm. So headache, myalgias, fevers, chills, and GI symptoms. Um, in terms of the labs here, we're going to see, again, that sort of pattern of a little bit of an LFT bump, some low platelets in the thrombocytopenia. But uh, babesiosis, interestingly, is intracellular to the RBCs, mm -hmm. so it actually causes a hemolytic anemia. And with that, so you have your LDH. Yeah, if you if you're smart enough to grab the LDH, or if you think to grab the LDH, or you're worried about the disease process, you'll see an LDH uh, elevation from the hemolysis. Cool. So to compare it to anaplasmosis, just I, I try and think simple. There's a lot of flu-like symptoms. They're gonna yep. have fever, sweats, malaise. Um, rash in both of these is kind of rare. We're going to treat with doxy for anaplasmosis. So make it simple. We're going to treat with doxy for babesiosis. Yeah, no, sorry. Uh, this is the confusing part, and this is where it would be, uh, it's a little bit challenging in that babesiosis is the oddball out. It doesn't work as well with doxy. So it's azithro and atovaquin. If people are pretty sick, they can be hospitalized again more in the extremes of age you're going to use Clinda and quinine. I guess that kind of makes sense being kind of a, you know, a red blood cell infection, kind of like malaria. Yeah. You know what? I honestly hadn't made that connection, but that's a great way to kind of keep that, that line going. Yeah. I wish Doxy worked for all of these. This is the one outlier. Mm -hmm. Again, and then no prophylaxis for, for this disease process. Got it. All right. So the third in the group of the Northeast and Midwest is Lyme. We've talked a fair bit about Lyme already. But uh, the high points is that it's uh, from the black leg tick or the exoides scapularis, most common in the early part of the uh, summer, late part of the spring. The nymphoidal tick is the one that's going to really hit you hard with it, and they got to be attached for 36 hours. Again, the EM rash, that kind of targetoid varying erythema that's greater than 5 centimeters in diameter. Symptoms, again, chills, sweats, malaise, myalgias, they don't feel great. 
We didn't talk a ton about this because it's a whole other podcast in and of itself, but just to get into the kind of the three other areas that you would think in late Lyme. Mm -hmm. Cardiac, we're talking about things like conduction delays. Mm -hmm. Neurologic, the classic, and classic doesn't always mean most popular or most common, is the palsy, the Bell's palsy, bilateral Bell's palsy. Got to raise a red flag for Lyme, but you can have different palsies and neuropathies. And there's actually like mild cognitive impairment that people will get. They get this kind of mental slowing with uh, neuro uh, Lyme disease. And then the rheumatologic, which is those arthralgias. But those are kind of, you know, later presentation. Yep. Again, labs in terms of this lady, if we're pulling labs on her because she's a little sicker. So general labs for Lyme disease, not going to have as much of that pattern recognition that you can have in um, anaplasmosis or babesiosis. You know, you're going to get elevated inflammatory markers. You might have a little bit of that LFT bump as well, but not as much of those sort of classic, um, you know, uh, thrombocytopenia with the transaminitis and the uh, lymphopenia like you see in the others. Uh So harder to get a a smoking gun right off the bat with Lyme disease. And so what about, you know, are we going to test this woman for Lyme? Are we going to just presume based on kind of an endemic area, her symptoms and her tick bite exposure? You go ahead and treat her. Yeah, so that's a fantastic question, and I think the the textbook answer may different differ from clinical practice a little bit. And so, in terms of testing all of these spirochete based disease processes early into the disease course, you know, the seven five seven day time frame of symptoms, our tests are not going to be as positive. They're not going to have the same sensitivity specificity uh, as they do later in the disease process. So most of the time they're recommending in an endemic area with kind of a good constellation of symptoms, a decent pretest probability, uh, either someone that works and is constantly being exposed with ticks or has a known tick exposure, they're saying treat off symptoms, definitely. Yeah. If you're not sure you need to test, the testing, again, it gets a little complicated and it's a little bit nerdy and it may even be a little, a little bit above my level of understanding, to be honest. For Lyme, it's pretty clear they talk classically about using the ELISA test initially. And these are looking for our antibodies, the human antibodies to the disease process. Talking about IgM, which appears first, and then IgG, which appears later. So we're looking for those in in ELISA. And if that's positive or abnormal, then we're going to follow that up with a Western blot test. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I think, a, a great way to summarize it, too. And we talked about in, in these studies, there's even endemic areas, there's a low probability of Lyme. Uh-huh. So even though these tests, you know, the ELISA may have a mid 80s sensitivity, the predictive value is probably not going to be very, very good, especially for the patient who presents early. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, because the pretest probability with her may be a little bit higher. But in the sort of the asymptomatic patient that people are testing for, it's more likely you're going to get a false positive than you are a true positive. Right, which gets rather complicated. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it makes sense in this woman to go ahead and treat her with, with Doxy based on her symptoms, the endemic area, the tick exposure. Totally. I completely agree with that. And, you know, you're going to have to, we can go through the, if if she had abnormal labs in the other areas, mm-hmm. you know, if certainly if we're thinking that it's pointing more towards anaplasmosis, we're already covering her well with the doxycycline covering for Lyme and co-infections do occur. So if someone has that uh, sort of pattern of lab abnormalities, we want to make sure we're covering for Lyme disease as well. 
or if we see those LFT, you know, if we see the uh, findings for the hemolytic anemia that might point us a little bit more towards the babesiosis, we need to consider initiating therapy for that as well. Yeah, no, that's a, a really great point because there's certainly overlap in these clinical presentations, some of these labs. So being able to tease it out certainly makes a difference, you know, when we're talking specifically about um, babesiosis because that's got a different treatment. And, you know, like you said too, IDSA says, hey, if, if you're if you're treating a patient with Lyme and they're not really getting better, think about co-infections. Yeah, sure. And so that'd be a great way to sort of uh, tease that out a little bit more, whether you have a patient that presents to the ED after being on, on Doxy for presumed Lyme, yep. something to think about, or um, when you're uh, counseling the patient, giving them Doxy, if, if they're not improving, you know, they certainly need to check in with their physician again. Yep, to think about specifically babesiosis. Yeah. It's definitely a lower incidence of disease. If you're going to shoot for a larger target, you got to shoot for Lyme disease, right, in terms of the tick-borne illnesses. But if they have that classic patterning but they're not improving, you have to think about something that might not be covered by it. Mm -hmm. So to kind of go over those all together, the uh, the difference, there's a couple different things. There's that uh, ELISA and then the Western blot for Lyme. And I think I mentioned for anaplasmosis that we're going to be doing that, that smear looking for it in the neutrophils or doing PCR. For Babesia, we're going to also have the option to do the babesial PCR, and then a, a smear looking for intracellular uh, spirochetes. Mm -hmm. And then so the, the other demographic area with two disease processes is kind of the southern, southeast part of the United States and the south central U.S. And here we're looking at ehrlichiosis and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So looking at ehrlichia itself, ehrlichiosis, um, southeastern U.S., south central, it's caused by the black leg tick again, the exoides scapularis, but also the lone star tick, which is probably a bigger player in terms of transmitting this disease. In terms of thinking about your geography, you know if you live in this area, if you're listening to this podcast, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas is about 35% or so of the cases yeah. of Ehrlichia. Symptoms, a little bit of a, you know, rewind, press play, fever, chills, malaise, they got the myalgias, headache, GI symptoms, including, so we talk about nausea, vomiting, some diarrhea, and anorexia are common. Um, rash, for this one, you're going to see it more in the kids than in the adults, so it's an element of the disease. Um, the general labs that we're pulling for Ehrlichia are, are similar. You're going to see that they have that leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and the LFT abnormalities. But again, we're looking at a completely different geographical area. We have a much lower, if no, incidence of those other disease processes. So we're really focusing in on this. If, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Lyme, Lyme is a bit of an interesting player. It's definitely the area that we talked about, plus a little bit of the West Coast. And there's a couple of smatterings of it elsewhere. Anaplasmosis and babesiosis, we've really seen it in that demographic, that Northeast and the Midwest. Yeah. And so now that we're talking about the South and Southeast, again, ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So if you're seeing that patient with the tick bite and these symptoms and you're finding these labs of leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and LFT bump, we got to think about that disease. Yeah, that's great. You know, one thing I was just thinking about too, with uh, any any patient presents with a fever is always trying to take a travel history too. Oh, so sure. Not just foreign um, travel, but, you know, did they just come from their, their two-week trip in Maine and, yeah, and now right. they're not in the Lyme endemic area, but if I didn't get that travel history, I might have missed that. For sure, yeah. for sure, especially with the summer, you know, travel for vacation, absolutely. Um, and then for the diagnosis of ehrlichiosis, we have that PCR again of the whole blood, or you can do the indirect 
fluorescent antibody or the IFA. This is where it gets a little bit confusing for me, to be honest. There's the ELISA, there's the IFA, similar but slightly different processes. I don't think that that part is as important. Your lab is hopefully rightfully testing these patients with either PCR are doing an antibody-based test, either ELISA or IFA. Yeah. That's why I just look for the order sets. I look for the tick panel and yep. I hit click. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think you know there's value in certainly checking to see what those are because there's a lot of argument about are the appropriate tests um, being done, especially for Lyme disease or certain you know whole blood PCR. There's argument against doing that. So if your lab is doing the wrong test, that's probably important to recognize that. Lyme is the ELISA followed by the Western blot. Here we're talking about actually doing the uh, whole blood PCR for ehrlichiosis or doing the IFA. Treatment, simple again, doxy, 100 milligrams BID for five to seven days uh, as a minimum, but also they recommend by the IDSA to do th at least three days after uh, the fever subsides. Okay. And it's a 2.2 mg per kg per dose for kids uh, essentially matching what we've talked about already. Got it. So southeastern, south central U.S., we're talking about the black-legged tick and the Lone Star tick. Um, also seeing some Oklahoma, Missouri, some Arkansas. Kind of similar symptoms, flu-like symptoms, some nausea, vomit, diarrhea, rash. More often in the kids, and then we're going to see some of those similar labs with kind of the cell lines being down, yep. LFT bump. Yep. Yeah, and then Good old Doxy. We're going to treat with Doxy and treat um, even for a few days after that fever subsides for three days. Exactly. Awesome. And then our last one is kind of the big bad guy that's outside of our geographical area. So we should you know, mention that, kind of disclaim that we're working in the Northeast, but, and we're going to talk about Rocky Mountain spotted fever. But it's an important disease to know as a tick-borne illness, a podcast talking about these disease processes and not talking about Rocky Mountain spotted fever would be remiss. So it's mostly in the Southeast. It is kind of everywhere, but man, 60% are going to be in these five states, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, and uh, Missouri. I like all of those states. Yeah. Like you said, good states, bad diseases. Uh -huh. And so this is the American dog tick, the brown dog tick, or the Rocky Mountain wood tick. Those are the ones that send it. So different than some of the other disease processes. We're we really hate that Exodia scapularis here because, man, it carries a lot of the things we don't like. Uh, this is spread by a couple different uh, ticks in, in the endemic areas. So he's got partners in crime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so rash is common in this disease, kind of similar to Lyme, but maybe even more so. 90% of patients are going to have this rash. This is can be a pretty nasty-looking rash. Yeah, this you look is at pretty – this is that pathognomonic. It's, you know, a, a big thing that everyone's worried about. What is what – is, what do you – how do you pattern – Kind of recognize this rash. Yeah, so I think that kind of uh, erythematous rash with the these pretty chunky macules, macules on top of an erythematous base, and then uh, transition in towards having petechial elements to it. It's a pretty uh, impressive and, and and gnarly looking rash in its own right when it presents that way, and um, it's pretty pathognomonic in its own in its own clinical context mm -hmm. for Rocky Mountain spot fever. Yeah. Um, symptoms here, a little bit different. Pretty elevated fever. The fever is an impressive part of this, as is the headache. Uh, pretty severe headache. Headache, high fevers, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. That's going to be something that you have to think about. And then some of those other elements, malaise, myalgias, nausea, vomiting, anorexia. 
Um, and then edema of the eyes and hands. Hmm. So this is, I have to say, we're working here in, in Maine area. I haven't hmm. seen this disease process, but that's something that, you know, the CDC and the IDSA recognize as an element of the disease. Okay. So I'm thinking this nasty rash, and then I'm going to keep my eyes out for that edema mm-hmm. of the eyes and hands. Cool. And this um, this one can progress. So later symptoms and signs, you know, you're going to get uh, cerebral involvement, actually things like cerebral edema and the associated altered mental status. And people can go on to things like ARDS and respiratory compromise from Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. So definitely a big player, big uh, kind of a, a little bit more uh, intimidating disease process yeah. to tackle when it when it gets bad like mm-hmm. that. The laboratory work, the general labs that you're going to see here, you know, the low platelets and the transaminitis, man, rinse and repeat, right? A lot I of these like this. Simple, I'm a simple man. I like simple common themes among yeah. my stuff. Yeah. I like the, the commonalities, recognizing it, okay, think about tick illness, but then you want to find that little element that might be different. Yep. And here in Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, hyponatremia and azotemia. Okay. So, so those azotemia are, certainly seems unique, and the hyponatremia in contrast to the other yeah, to the illnesses. other tick-borne illnesses, mm-hmm. right? So for the diagnosis, we're going to do our antibody testing again, the IFA or uh, ELISA, and treatment. What do you guess? What do you think? Uh, azithromycin? No, no, no. Um, no, I'm going to go doxy. 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 Doxy 400. Doxy yeah. for the win. Yep, so doxy for the win, exactly. So doxycycline, 100 milligrams, BID, and that same pattern that we saw um, of five to seven days as a minimum but you're gonna wanna get at least three days past the last fever. All right, so let's kinda wrap that up. We've talked a lot about Lyme, we talked a bit about all these other diseases. Let's sort of take it from the patient side. Let's talk about the patient without symptoms, tick bite, and the patient with some nonspecific. I'll do that patient without without symptoms. So they come in within 72 hours, They and they're worried about a tick, the tick exposure. So we first figure out there is certainly evidence for reducing the incidence of Lyme. And that's the main thing we're worried about here is trying to decide if we can give chemoprophylaxis for Lyme. Sure. So, because we certainly want to prevent some of those long-term outcomes. So what we do is I think it's reasonable to risk stratify patients, not give everybody antibiotics because the incidence is actually pretty low, even in endemic areas. So we're going to ask ourselves, um, we want to go through those four checklists with IDSA. So we talked about the attached tick being um, uh, from a deer tick. Uh, Attached for greater than 36 hours. We can start antibiotics within 72 hours of the tick removal, and that local infection rate was greater than 20%. So we're going to add all those things together, and our local infection rate, again, we're talking about really the endemic areas, the areas we mentioned earlier. If all those things are checking out, and I think this patient is probably a reasonable candidate for chemoprophylaxis, yep. so, but I first evaluate the candidacy for antibiotics, then look at the IDSA guidelines, and if there's no contraindication for doxy, we're going to be given that 200 milligrams of doxycycline for an adult, and remember that kid dose? 4.4. 4.4. It makes per keg up to the 200 milligram, um, so that's that one-time dose of doxy. Nice. All right, and so then the patient with symptoms, and this happens a lot too. Patient comes in either, I'm covered in ticks all year, I don't feel well, and these are my vagues of you know fever, malaise, myalgias, or I got a tick bite and now I have those symptoms. Um, certainly not I have this classic rash of Rocky Mountain spotted fever or of Lyme disease. That's different, right? The patient with symptoms that are very nonspecific. 
we kind of think about that in two different endemic areas. In the Northeast and Minnesota, Wisconsin area, we're going to talk about Lyme, anaplasmosis, babesiosis. If the patient is relatively sick, we're going to get some laboratory work. So labs for tick identification are considerations. Again, if they are presenting several days, five, seven, ten days after um, the onset of symptoms, because early on, it's going to be less effective. But we're going to be talking about the ELISA and the Western blot for Lyme, the blood smear and the PCR for anaplasmosis or babesiosis. In the interim, though, if someone is, is relatively ill with their disease, and that's going to happen in the extremes of age, so our, our 65-year-old, 75-year-old that comes in, tachycardic, maybe febrile, you're probably going to pull your CBC and your CMP, and we're going to see some of those things, the lymphopenia, the anemia, thrombocytopenia, and the LFT bump, oftentimes for the anaplasmosis and the babesiosis. If the anemia is, is significant and you add on or pull uh, LDH, then you're going to start thinking a little bit more toward the babesiosis. If you see that patterning in general of low platelets, low uh, lymphocytes, and a transaminitis, you're going to be thinking certainly about anaplasmosis and possibly a co-infection or Lyme disease where you're going to be using your doxycycline. In the south and the southeast, we have a, a whole other kettle of fish, two different diseases to think about. We have our ehrlichiosis and our Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So in terms of specific tests there, we're going to do a PCR of the whole blood or the uh, IFA for ehrlichiosis and the uh, IFA or the ELISA for Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Again, if they're presenting ill, we're going to pull those same labs, the CBC and the CMP. If you see the uh, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and the LFT bump, in this area, in the south and southeast, we're going to think about ehrlichiosis or Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Add on some hyponatremia and azotemia, then you're going to be pushed pretty strongly toward Rocky Mountain spotted fever as your diagnosis. So if those labs point you in that direction, that's a sign for active infection. We're not talking again about prophylaxis here. We're going to be talking about treatment. Overarching, you're pretty much going to say doxycycline, 100 milligrams, BID, unless we're thinking specifically about babesiosis, in which case we're going to use azithromycin. or if the person needs to be admitted or is quite ill, then we're going to be talking about clinda and quinine. Sound good? Sounds awesome. Cool. Except for the part of getting the tick illness. Yes. Having the tick bite, getting the tick illness, that doesn't sound good. As a provider, it sounds straightforward enough, I guess. I think it's... Uh, this is... Uh, it's not as, as murky as it thinks. I mean, I think it's it's really based on kind of sound concepts, evidence. Um, I think there's some generalizations we can make among these tick-borne illnesses. And, and when all else fails, just go for the doxy. Yeah. There you go. Perfect. So I think... As we come to a close, we'd be remiss if we have a, a microphone and an opportunity for a public service announcement not to talk about proper tick removal. Two things come up. How do you take off a tick? And if you pull off a tick and there's a little bit in there, what do you do? So, Jason, one of my favorite jobs was right after college. So I, I got my EMT during college, and then I didn't want to go to med school yet. So actually, I served as the medical director of a summer camp for kids. Oh, wow. Uh, just outside of Lyme, Connecticut. So, <laughs> so you, you might be the world expert I tell you, in I took removal. off more ticks from more kids, and I learned how not to leave the parts embedded and there how to go. get it out. So, so you use a match, right? Yeah. Well, you say, think, think about what you're trying to prevent. You're trying to get the tick, the entire tick out, but you're also trying to not have it barf in, inside. You in don't your, want to get inside uh, your skin. Yeah. yeah you sure. don't want to get the bacteria that causes Lyme or other tick-borne illnesses. So yeah. there's a lot of myths out there about how to 
um, remove a tick. So imagine having a nice meal and someone, your mouth is full of, you know, maybe we're up in Maine, nice lobster meal. Sure. Someone brings a uh, torch up under your butt. What yeah. are you going to do? I'm going to spit my food You're right probably out. probably going to spit All your food place. right out. Yeah. And I don't know, that's the analogy I, I think of and I, I teach about with removing a tick. Um, how about if I smothered you in Vaseline to suffocate you while you were eating your, your lobster? <laughs> I, yeah, a similar process probably. Similar process. Thrashing, so, maybe. Yeah, I mean, we're providers. We we have a general sense for how to do this, but if if you know you're you're you don't remove them as often, we're not going to light a match. Certainly, no one's going to light a match in, in the emergency department. But we're not going to smother them, asphyxiate them. They have a really interesting sort of contraption they feed with, and then some are barbed, and they also secrete this cement like. Um, yeah. substance that helps them stay in there. And one of the things that I really learned is is grabbing some really fine pointed um, tweezers. You can also use some special tick removing uh, little devices that have kind of a tiny little slot that you can slide yeah, into. The cards. Yeah. So we're not going to do any of those things that we talked about. We're going to grab right at the base where where it actually inserts. And the key thing that I learned was you're going to do some gentle tugging and the tick's going to decide that it's not wanted. And it's not welcome. Okay. And then it's going to slowly pop out. So it's not a, a grab and yank because um, when we do that, we tend to leave tick parts in, which is okay. We know that um, those will eventually uh, make their way out. There's no indication to remove those. You just sort of um, sanitize the area over it. There's no increased risk of, of Lyme by leaving those in. And by trying to remove that, that's where you set someone up for a secondary cellulitis or other, you know, they get a nasty inflammatory reaction just because there's a little bit of a foreign body that's irritated and then they think they have Lyme. So you just leave it alone. Totally. Yeah. I, gosh, I remember a decade ago when I started to see a lot of them here and I would try and anesthetize it and dig them out. And, you know, some of these have little barbs on them. It, it's just not necessary. It can be a pain in the butt to try and to try and do that. So yeah. go ahead and, and leave it in. If the patient comes in with the, the tick bite remaining and that's the concern, just some good education, cleanse that area, thing will be okay. Sure. And so the tweezer, you're grabbing and gentle, slow pressure, and it's the tick that's deciding to let go. You're not ripping the tick out of the skin. Yeah. And again, really important to get right at the skin, so not in the body. And that, that's the thing, you know, when I just when I first learned and I was just grabbing and pulling out, I, I was I was leaving some, some mouth parts in there. Sure. Yeah. So I, what I, I've noticed is just grabbing right at the skin and then you'll kind of pull and just a little tenting of the skin right at that area. Yeah. And, um, you know, after it may take 10, 15 seconds, just some gentle tugging and I find that much more effective to, to remove the tick entirely. Perfect. All right, guys. I think that's everything I could possibly say about ticks. What about you? Uh, the one thing I like to tell my one last thing I'd leave with is Spiders are great. They, they help catch bugs that bother me. I think they're beautiful species. I teach my kids to respect them. And I agree. Um, when it comes to ticks, kill them, burn them, squash them. They carry disease. Yeah, yeah. Uh, them. Put them down. Yes. Uh, that's, that's my last parting message. Perfect. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks.